You know, I had put all of the sermons for Christmas that I have on one page on our website. Because uh, I had seen a couple other pastors do that, and I thought, hey, that's a nice way for people to be able to just listen to a whole bunch of Christmas stuff, get in the spirit. You know, they could burn through decades and different preachers and different themes. And I noticed that there's actually a, a fairly consistent theme of mine that I will get in here and tell you that the nativity scene isn't as wrong as everyone tells you it is. Right? I got a message about the shepherds and they're not filthy and, and vulgar. I got a message about how it wasn't necessarily two years later that the Magi came. Could have been very shortly after Jesus was born that there could have been animals there, regardless of what Newsweek tries to tell you. But this year, I do want to suggest one little tweak to our standard nativity. And that is, it's right, right in the middle. And I know this is going to be controversial. And you may not have some of these. You may need to actually make a purchase to make this particular change. But it's, it's, it's a pair of these. And I, I'm putting them right here in the hands of baby Jesus. Now, if you can't see, these are nunchucks. Okay? Now, if you don't have any nunchucks at home that are small enough for your nativity for baby Jesus, just buy yourself a ninja turtle. You're going to want Michelangelo. He's the one with the nunchucks. And if you don't know what nunchucks are, I brought some big ones to show you. And I may be the only pastor this Christmas in the whole country who's going to do this. Whoa! Ah, I thought I could get it behind the... There we go. And... I actually hope I'm the only pastor in the whole country this Christmas who does that. But why nunchucks? Well, because Jesus is laying there and he's doing nothing, and that's okay because he's just a baby. But we really overemphasize the laying there doing nothingness of Jesus. Uh, as we've been singing, we went caroling last week, and, and I noticed that a good two-thirds of our Christmas songs that we go to every year, our standards, they're about one thing, about how quiet and well-behaved a baby Jesus was. That's it. He didn't cry. He didn't coo. He didn't do anything. He's very, very much just inert. And yet Jesus came to do something. And at Christmas, we should be reminding ourselves of what Jesus came to do. There's one song that talks about how chains shall he break. I like that one. There's a few references here and there to what Jesus came to do. And I understand why we love to emphasize the quietness and the smallness. Because it, it's, it's it's the incarnation is a paradox. That the God of the universe is in this tiny, fragile, quiet little baby. Yes, and we want to remember that this is peaceful, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And how appealing and compelling is that during a time like this, when we just long for peace and for, for harmony and unity. But at the same time, just like Solomon had a kingdom and a reign of peace because his father David had gone and fought for it and bled for it, Jesus brings us peace by fighting for it and bleeding for it. And I, I fear that we often take Christmas, the whole package, the whole season, and just turn it into something sweet to be consumed. It, we're very much a consumption-driven culture, and, and we make it just something that we consume. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. 
and that's it. So you start with, you got some, some Christmas cookies and candy canes and, and all these different things that are sweet in your mouth and you like them and they're good. And then you put on some Nat King Cole and some Bing Crosby and listen to the nice music. And then you got to put on those movies that we watch every year that, that definitely pull the heartstrings. And we didn't get to all of them, but ideally you would kind of run the gamut, right? You'd have, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter, I'm going to jail. And you'd have, I've made my family disappear. Right? And then you'll shoot your eye out. And then, of course, you're going to have uh, Clark Griswold with all the things. And then finally, of course, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And scene. Great Christmas, everybody. That's it. It's over. Go home. We'll do it again next year. But St. John won't let us get away with that. Jesus came to invade your heart. That's why he's got nunchucks. I'm going to suss out the nunchucks a little more, but let me acknowledge that it's uncomfortable to mess with the nativity. It's, un it's even uncomfortable at Christmas. Sometimes I sense in the room to bring up the crucifixion, which is what Jesus came to do, to die on the cross for our sins. But it may be even more uncomfortable to suggest that he came to, to do something inside of us, to crucify something in my heart and yours. But we see here in 1 John chapter 3 why it is that this babe was born, why Jesus came. In verse 5, we read, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So why did Jesus come? He appeared on earth. He came to take away sins. He came to die on a cross, our sins on his shoulders. He, being without sin, says it right in the same breath, took the sins of you and of me upon himself and became sin and paid the penalty, paid the price so that you and I could have his righteousness. Talk about a gift exchange. Have you ever been in one of those gift exchanges and it's uneven? And you're like, oh, wow, I like you a lot more than you like me, right? Like, here's a Blu-ray player. Oh, I got you that funny trout that sings that you put on your wall. Oh, okay. This is, this is worse than that. Here's all of my filth, my sin, my shame, my guilt. And he takes it. And he says, here is my righteousness and eternal life in exchange. He was born so we could be born again. That's, that is true. But he didn't just come to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. He did come for that, but not just for that. He came to rescue us from the power of sin. Read verse 6. We keep going. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And this brings us to verse 8. This very, very straightforward, nunchucky verse. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here's the reason for the season, my friends. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The, the works of the devil. What, what is it? What is the work of the devil? What is, what is he write? You know, when, he, when he's filling out his, his thing online, it says occupation. The work of the devil is to keep us at odds with our Creator. To be between us. To keep us separate from our God who loves us. To keep us running from Him and fighting with Him. 
And even when we come to faith and we turn to Him and we repent and we believe and we're born again, He still likes to try and throw stuff in the middle. Shame about our old sins or backsliding into old sins or new sins so that there is not an open relationship of love and blessing. And Jesus came to destroy that. This goes all the way back to the beginning, to the garden. You know, we read in in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. And and we read in John 1, which, which Mimi read for us, that Jesus was involved intimately in every aspect of that. And that he planted the garden. And then there's this fun little word that Moses uses there. He planted, not ta, he planted Adam and Eve also in the garden. And he said, all right, now keep doing what I did. Make this whole planet like this place. Subdue it. Rule over it. Have a lot of kids and glorify me. But of course, we have the fall in Genesis 3. Satan came and he planted something of his own, which was idolatry, seeds of rebellion and wicked ambition and spiritual adultery. And so when Jesus comes, he's coming to fulfill the promise that came in Genesis 3.15. He's coming to uproot the stuff that Satan planted. Every bit of it. Not just to say, well, you're a sinner, but that's okay because I came You'll you'll be in in heaven with me. Don't worry. You said the prayer. You filled out the card. You did all that I asked. No, but rather to reach down deep into my heart and your heart and uproot anything, anything in us that is not of him. He wasn't born just because it's a nice idea, but to accomplish a mission in our hearts. Jeremiah 24, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Or in Ephesians 2, we read that we will become new creations. On Sunday, we were emphasizing the historicity of Christmas, that this is not something that happens in kind of a metaphorical, spiritual truth way, but something that truly happened in the fullness of time. When Caesar Augustus was was the emperor during the the time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. You remember that. Good times. I didn't like the music during that era, but, you know, everything else was fun. But, But we have to also emphasize that this isn't just some historical thing that happened. It's not just something that we can lay out a diorama and go, isn't it nice? And then move on. Rather, this is something that must happen in each of us. Luther wrote this. The gospel does not merely teach about the history of Christ. No, it enables all who believe it to receive it as their own, which is the way the gospel operates. Of what benefit would it be to me if Christ had been born a thousand times and it would daily be sung into my ears in a most lovely manner if I were never to hear that he was born for me and was to be my very own? If the voice gives forth this pleasant sound, even if it be in homely phrase, my heart listens with joy, for it is a lovely sound which penetrates the soul. Our encounter with God, it changes something. It changes our status in God's eyes, but it also begins a work that he's doing in our hearts. Nunchuck-type work. We see that when Jesus came, it so so changed everything that when we look back now, 2,000 years later, we're counting from when we believe he was born. 
It's split time right down the middle, B.C. and A.D. And the same thing must be true in our lives if we truly follow him. We'll have the B.C. portion of our lives before Christ entered the picture and saved me from my sins and began uprooting the works of the devil and destroying them and after. And after looks a lot different from before. The devil has sinned from the beginning. He said, what is sin? What is the work of the devil, practically speaking, that he came to destroy? He defines it here as lawlessness. Lawlessness, or, or probably the way we would frame it today, is autonomy. That's a nice word from the Greek, autos meaning self, namos meaning law, self-law. I decide what's right and wrong. I follow my heart and do it that way. Right? Whatever is right in my own eyes. You ever read the book of Judges? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Yeah, it's really like a, the toilet flushing of disaster going right down into the pits of hell. It doesn't work out, and yet we keep on trying. Jesus came to save us from that, to save us from lawlessness, of saying, I'll be my own standard, my own way. But when Christ came to save us from that, he doesn't save us into becoming legalists who follow a list of 30,000 laws. Like, you know, you read the tax code. No one can even know it. It's so long and so complex. What is the law of Christ that we're called to believe and obey? What is the law of Christ that if we are born of him and not of the devil, we will follow it, according to John here? Well, in in chapter 5, he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. And so the law, and this goes all the way back to the Last Supper and when Jesus said, I I give you a a new commandment, the law is love. That's, That's step one. To love, we love one another. If we love God, we'll love his children. In fact, we look in in, uh, chapter 2, just a few verses before we've been reading. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So he came to destroy our hatred of our brothers and sisters. He came to destroy our spite and our envy and all that would drive us away from love and away from putting others before ourselves. But he also came to destroy our love of the world. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this this is what God has called us to do, or more accurately, what God has called us to be. Because sin and righteousness in the New Testament are not about checking a bunch of boxes and doing, uh, not doing a bunch of things, but rather about what we are becoming in Jesus Christ. He would have us be people who love our brother and love God and people who don't love the world. In fact, hate the world's values and what it would have us do and be. And that's again and again reinforced 
Look in the book of James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Love, which comes in, in action. Love and faith working itself out in love. And of course, righteousness. Now, we're not seeing sinless perfection being taught here. You might hear a passage that says something like, if we go on sinning, then we have never known him. It's not sinless perfection. We know that for a fact because back in chapter 1, he said, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself. We all sin. It's all in the Greek tense here. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, the ESV says. We see in the New Living Translation, when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. I like John Piper's translation. He says, no one born of God is content to keep sinning. If we've been born again, if we've been changed, if we are being worked on by that baby with the nunchucks and he is uprooting, oh, it just occurred to me, maybe some kind of gardening tool would have been more fitting. Oh, well, nunchucks are more fun. Then he is uprooting and we will find ourselves more and more discontent with our sin, uneasy with our son, unwilling to coexist and cohabit with sin and more and more willing to begin ripping up those roots ourselves. It maybe can all be summed up in these words from chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message. We have heard it from him, and we proclaim it to you, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or remember in the words of John chapter 1 that we heard a little earlier, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. At Christmas, we have a lot of lights, right? We have the light of the star, and that light, it guides us through the darkness of this world to Jesus where we receive life and are born again. We have the light of, of 10,000 angels blazing in the sky, singing glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill to man on whom his favor rests. He came with the light to shine it into our hearts, to burn away our sin and our autonomy and our selfishness. Walking in the light means walking toward Christ. It means when we sin, we confess our sins, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so I suggest that we cannot truly experience Christmas, we can't really reap its benefits, unless we recognize there is something within us that needs to be destroyed. He didn't come to destroy us, although he would have been righteous in doing so. No, he said, I came to save, to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He called himself the great physician. He came so that he could destroy the disease, to kill the infection, to eradicate the cancer. He said, I don't come for those who are healthy, but for those who know they are sick, I have come, and I am the cure. And you don't treat cancer with candy canes and Christmas cookies. You use chemo. And sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it burns within us, and sometimes it's a struggle. And, you know, I've had people say to me, Pastor, I, 
I read this kind of past passage, and yet I still struggle with the same sin over and over again. And I wonder, am I, am I even born again? Am I even saved? And I say, well, hold on a minute. Listen to yourself. First of all, you just said that you struggle with it. That means that you're fighting. That means that you are not content to live with it. And you said that it's the same sin, yes, but you've said that you are very discontented. Why else are you talking to me? You're not happy about this. And that means that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it through to completion. That that surgeon, that great physician will come in and continue cutting out that in us which is dead and deadly. And that he will even adopt us and make us his children. As we see in chapter 3 of 1 John and chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And he's still at work in his children, still destroying the works of the devil. Everything that stands between us and him, he will knock it down and knock it away, and he will clear a path between us. Everything that stands between, everything that would keep us from him, those are the works of the devil, the works that he has come to destroy. And maybe you even feel the effects of Satan's work tonight. And if that's the case, let me tell you this, Christmas is good news. You are not separated from your God. In Jesus Christ, you have full access. You come boldly to the throne of grace. We know that he has taken our sins and our guilt and our shame upon his shoulders on the cross, and he gives us back his righteousness so we stand perfectly spotless before our Father. And even as we find those old roots going down and the old fruit coming up, he is at work in us, pulling them away throwing them in the fire, and making us into who he would have us be. As we have our candlelight service, I would ask that you look at the lights of the candles and remember Jesus' words about a city on a hill. And remember that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we are his children, born not by our own will and not by natural methods, but by the will of God. We are his children, and he is not done with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have this message of what Jesus came to do. We thank you for the, the peace and tranquility of Christmas, of the, the thought of God in the flesh on the knee of his mother. And Lord, we do thank you for that. But we also thank you that that child grew up and preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and was beaten and mocked and spit upon and nailed to a cross and rose again on the third day. And he endured it all because in us he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What a great gift this Christmas. Lord, we pray that we would not leave it and forget to open it. That we would not walk away and say, well, that was Christmas. Don't I feel good? But that, Lord, we would throughout the rest of this year and into next year turn to you and ask that you burn away, pull away anything in us that is not of you, anything that would separate us from your face, and that, Lord, you would continue to make us your children. Amen.